Uh, Open your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and this morning we're going to, we're actually going to finish this letter uh, to the Colossians, and I'm excited uh, about that. I'm excited about rounding out uh, this letter, and I think that though this conclusion is a little bit different than what you might expect in terms of a concluding sermon, uh, you'll find how it connects to the rest of this letter as we go through it. So Colossians chapter 4, we begin in verse 7. And it reads, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke The beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Pray with me. Father, as we enter into your word, we do pray that you would make it clear to us how it applies to our lives and how we need this uh, reality, these truths, and not only so that we would know how to live, but so that we would uh, more uh, deeply love you and your people. Thank you, God, that the work of ministry has never been on one man alone, but it's been on men and women who have been saved by grace and that ultimate one man who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that in him you have bought your church and you are building it up. And we give you glory and honor for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I can safely say and I guess more so gladly say that throughout life and ministry, it's always been one of my greatest joys, not only to serve Christ, but in that, to have great friends. In life and in ministry, one of the greatest joys is that you have great friends. As Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, there is much for him to say, and he's in some way coming to that place where he's already said it. Paul's goal for this church is that they would believe upon the gospel of Jesus as they first received it by him 
and his disciples that they would hold fast to the word of God as it was delivered to them in truth. And though there's those who would step their way into the church and try to tamper with the message of the gospel of Christ, Paul recognizes that and he tries to focus this church, this church in Colossae, he looks to refocus their minds and their hearts back on a clear understanding of who Christ is. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent over all things. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, there is reconciliation for the world. And by his cross, by that bloody cross, there is peace for men with God and with one another. There is no other antidote or any other need that the church has but Christ and Christ alone. This has been Paul's message to this church. And we've highlighted a few times that as Paul seeks to make this message clear, it comes in this form of a letter, and that because Paul is imprisoned. Paul has been chained up for the very gospel that he is trying to reaffirm this church of. He wants them to have full assurance, not only in their belief, but much more so in the God that they've believed. And Paul recognizes that the work that has happened in this church And the work that needs to happen in this church and the work that has happened in this church, it's not all due to him. And as Paul closes this letter, he looks around and he notices and he recognizes and he appreciates his friends. It truly is one of the greatest joys and delights of ministry. And when you're serving Christ and you're giving your all to seeing Christ known in the hearts of other people, One of the greatest joys is the people that are standing beside you and doing that work with you. In fact, as we enter into this final portion of the letter, what we're seeing, it's almost a a postcard to the letter. It it serves as a bit of a, as a photo, uh, a group photo uh, that helps highlight and adorn this letter with a, a bit of a more personal and pastoral touch. Uh, He's tried to encourage this church so much in the way that they should go, in the way that they should think, in the one in whom they should believe. But he wants them to remember and he wants them to note the many men that it's taken to preserve and to uphold the truth of this gospel. Uh, You have that in this ministry and and so do I. In fact, I I asked the guys to put up a picture if we have it. Um, There they are. Look at them. On the left, you see Tychicus, and then you see Epaphras, and then Tim Brenner. And the <laughs> uh, no, I, I, as I thought of this final section of the book of Colossians, I thought of this photo, which is missing Ben Herb, because he was at a wedding, not his own. And I, I thought of these men because, truly, I think this is the image that you get as you look into the the last few verses of this letter. It's not literally this image, but it's something like it. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the men of God at work with the people of God. These guys in this photo, they're all shepherds in this ministry. And you might not know them all by name, but they all play a huge role in the reason that not only that you're here, but for many of you, the reason that you love this ministry, the the reason that you're growing in this ministry, and it's something like this, maybe not in photo form, because they didn't have that in that day, and you can take that picture down, it's 
It's probably best for all of us. We can't take more of Tim's knees. But it is something like that that Paul is bringing to bear at the end of this letter to bring that pastoral and to bring that human element to ministry that sometimes goes lacking. Amidst believing in Jesus and amidst trusting in Christ the way that he is and telling people how they should live and how they should think and how they should even speak, Paul wants them to know we too are people just like you. And our goal is similar to yours. Our desire is simply to be faithful. And of note as well is Paul not only desires to show them that by means of these men, I think it's Paul being who he technically always is. And one of the reasons we love Paul is that he's a humble man. And this final greeting from Paul, it highlights that reality for us. That in the life of this church, and as he seeks to see this church grow in loving Christ and serving Christ and being devoted to Christ, it isn't simply because of Paul. It's because of other godly men and women who come alongside him in that effort. And more importantly, they come alongside and they stay close to Jesus in hoping to see others come to know and love Christ just as they do. And so Paul recognizes that men need help from other men. He recognizes that to be more faithful and to be more effective in ministry, they need one another. Paul recognizes that he's not in ministry as a lone ranger. He's not in ministry to do this by himself, but instead he has great help. And Paul doesn't cast that aside. In fact, instead, he appreciates it and he notes that that help that he receives. And more importantly, he notes it by name. He notes it by name. And so what I'd like for us to do as we close this letter, I'd like to highlight to you eight separate friends that Paul has. And I want to show you how useful they were to him, how important they were to him, and how realistic it makes ministry look. Where, where these men, each of them, they, they're their allegiance to one another, it boils down not only to the fact that they're connected with each other, but it really comes down to the fact that they're connected to Christ. That when God's people love Christ as Christ has made himself known, these kinds of relationships are possible for them. When Christ is regarded as Lord, we regard ourselves as lesser than that. And when we do that, we seek relationships in which we help one another to promote Christ as king. Where Christ is regarded as Lord, we seek to find friends who want to proclaim the same message and live the same life. Paul demonstrates this to us predominantly in this text by highlighting eight of his closest friends. And I want to look at those quickly because we are... Uh, we will be short on time, and you, you can't just possibly talk about all of these guys too in-depth. So let's go quickly through these eight friends and see how this will impact our lives as we seek to honor Christ in the way that we believe and trust in Him and follow Him with a life that's devoted to Him. First, Paul highlights a man by the name of Tychicus. And I've subtitled these all, and for Tychicus, I, I've dubbed him as the faithful servant, the faithful servant. 
Here in verse 7, he will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. This man, Tychicus, is a faithful servant. He's ministered alongside the Apostle Paul uh, for many years. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament, and we see him most, uh, first and foremost in Acts 20, verse 4. He makes himself willing to travel with the Apostle Paul as he goes to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey. And Tychicus proves to be this kind of young man who is willing and ready and able to do anything. There is no task for him that's too small, and there is no task that's too daunting or great. There is no task for him that seems like he's above it, and there's also no task that uh, makes him lose any ounce of confidence in what he's able to do. If Paul sees need of him, he's ready to serve. In Titus chapter 3, Paul desires for Titus to be with him. And he says, if, if I need you to come to me, I need someone to fill your spot. Titus was a, a pastor on an island called Crete. And, and Paul says, if I'm going to call you to myself, I can't leave the church there by itself. And so I'm thinking I'm going to send you a guy, and his name is Tychicus. Also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Towards the end of his life, Paul longs one last time to be with his beloved disciple and son in the faith, Timothy. And so again, he says, Timothy, I, I want you to come to me. I want to see you one last time. I, I need you to be by my side. Timothy, please come to me, but I, I know that you're ministering and I know that you have your church. I'm going to send someone to help. I'm going to send someone to be there. And his name is Tychicus. This is a guy who Paul respected and who, saw, who, who Paul saw serve in ministry to a capacity that Paul trusted him to do not only the most minute task that he had at hand, but also some of the biggest things in mind as well. Whether it was to pastor a church or even as it is in this letter here, to carry a letter to a church, Paul finds this man to be useful. Why? Because he's proven himself to be that. He's faithful. Tychicus will do anything if it advances the kingdom of God. If it makes Christ known. And if it means Jesus being known to God's people. Or even to those who do not know him yet. Tychicus is ready, willing, and able to go. And so he's grown or Paul has grown this deep affection for him in his heart. And now he's here being asked to deliver this letter to Colossae. And what's interesting is if you, if you know where Paul was during his imprisonment in writing this letter, it's very likely that Tychicus doesn't only carry the letter to Colossians. He likely also carries a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he also likely carries a letter that's coming to a particular member of the church in Colossae a man by the name of Philemon. And so this man who's willing to do everything, either to go pastor a church or to go be in prison with Paul, he's also commissioned here to carry three letters that are inspired scripture. This man can do anything. The reason isn't necessarily, and Paul doesn't make it to be, 
because he's gifted at everything. It's not because he's the most skilled person in the universe. It's not that he has all these different abilities that make him great. It's simply that he's willing to do whatever is asked of him. I think that's a great lesson for all of us. Do you make yourself available here in this ministry, at our church, to one another? Do you make yourself available to the smallest task and even the greatest task? When you're approached to serve Christ, are you ready? Always ready. Keeps coming back. PTSD. Um, That's the question that you ask yourself. And that's the kind of friend that Paul has in this man, Tychicus. He sent him now to the church in Colossae with this letter in hand, that they may know how Paul is and that he may encourage their hearts. You know, if you receive a letter from Paul in prison, it probably would have been really easy for you to think, man, things are not going well. Things must be really down right now. We're discouraged because how's Paul doing? This, this must not be going well. It's not looking good. Like, Paul must not be well. And instead, Paul sends this dear man, Tychicus, to encourage the Colossians' hearts as to how he is doing and to what, more importantly, God is up to. I think that's what makes Tychicus such a faithful friend. I think Paul highlights that for us in the way that he talks about him. He's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister, but he's also a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul doesn't view Tychicus as some guy who he can just use however he wants. He sees him as someone who's willing, ready, and able not to serve Paul, but to serve the Lord. I pray that that would be the same kind of attributes we can say of you, or that as you reflect on your own heart, you can say of yourself that you are a faithful servant, that when you are called on, you're ready. When you're called on, you're willing. And when you're called on, you go. You're dependable. You're reliable. You serve. He's the faithful servant, Tychicus. Secondly, we see another friend of Paul's, Onesimus, and he is the forgiven slave. The forgiven slave. Verse 9 With Tychicus comes another gentleman, his name is Onesimus, and he's our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And he'll tell you everything that has taken place here. Now, not a whole lot is said here about Onesimus, but to give you some background, there is, as I said, another letter, actually two others that are being sent with Tychicus to Colossae. One of them to the church in Ephesus, which would have been on the way, and the other one addressed to a man by the name of Philemon a man who is a member of this church here in Colossae. And that man Philemon, he has, he has a bone to pick with this guy Onesimus because Onesimus was his slave. And Onesimus not only was his slave, but he was kind of a, a bad one. He not only didn't want to be there and he ran away, but he also was the kind of guy that stole from his master. He took things that didn't belong to him. He, he wasn't just a, a servant, he was a wicked servant. And so Philemon has it out for Onesimus, and so does the rest of society. If you were a runaway like Onesimus, you were to be hunted down and you were to be punished for what you've done. And Onesimus' crimes, they transcended the fact that he was a runaway slave. It was that he was immoral by nature. Onesimus was seemingly the kind of guy you wanted nothing to do with. So interesting because Paul 
calls him a faithful and beloved brother. Something had to have changed in his life, and something did change. In the letter of Philemon, which is actually a book we're going to explore a little bit more when we're done with Colossians, because it gives us such a portrait of how this theology, it isn't just black and white. It takes on color. It isn't just something that you put in your head and your heart. It's something that you live out. And the life of Onesimus is one that demonstrates that to us. He's a runaway slave who has, uh, everyone has something wrong to say about him and everyone is hoping would, would get what he deserves and he faces it head on. He could have stayed in Rome where he ran away to and he could have hid away from his master, but he meets Paul and in doing so, he meets someone even greater. He meets Christ and in doing so, he returns home to face his issues head on not to run away from the consequences of it, not to run away from the difficulty faced in his relationships now with Philemon. Instead, he comes back a different man, a faithful and beloved brother. He's a walking portrait of what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's those kinds of words I'm sure Philemon must have understood when he finally sees Onesimus. This is a new man who's walking into town. He left a runaway. He left a thief, but he returned a faithful and beloved brother. These kinds of people, they make ministry useful. They make ministry strong. And they make ministry worth it because they demonstrate the power of the gospel to redeem anyone. No one has fallen too short of God's grace. Though all of us have offended God and and defied God's law and gone against God's holiness, God can save even the least of these. And Onesimus is a picture of that. And not only is Onesimus a picture of what happens to sinners when they're saved, Onesimus is a picture of when sinners are saved, they become useful in the work of ministry. If you want your heart to reflect that you truly love Christ. Don't just claim that your sins are forgiven. Claim that you seek to serve the Lord Jesus. Be like Onesimus. Know that your life is no longer what it was. Do away with the old self. Put on the new self and go be useful for Christ. That's what a forgiven slave would do. One who's been freed from the slavery of sin and freed unto the beautiful relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. We recognize absolutely we've been made clean. Absolutely we've been forgiven. What's more, we've been made useful. Onesimus, the forgiven slave. Thirdly, here we run into a man whose name is Aristarchus, and he's the fellow slave. Onesimus was the forgiven slave. Aristarchus is the fellow slave, and We can see that because here in verse 10, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus is a man who also joins Paul in his third missionary journey. You'd see that in Acts 20, verse 4. You see him again in Acts 27, 2. He's faithful to Paul as Paul endures the hardships of ministry, even so much so to the point that During his time in being with Paul, he too was imprisoned at one point. 
It's a little bit up to debate if in this moment Aristarchus is actually in prison with Paul because he deserved it or because he wanted to be. But either way, I think you would get the picture. Aristarchus seems to be the kind of guy who's by Paul's side no matter what. And if and if Paul is going to be a prisoner and if Paul's going to be regarded as a, a nobody for the sake of the gospel, then Aristarchus says, I want to be that too. Whatever comes with being a Christian, whatever, whatever hardships and whatever sufferings and whatever sorrows and whatever difficulties and whatever calamities might come for the sake of knowing Jesus, I want to be a part of that too. He stuck by Paul's side no matter what would come Paul's way. And I don't think that's because of Paul. I know that's because of Jesus. Aristarchus recognized that greater than Paul was the Lord that he served, and that's what made it worth it to be by Paul's side. And I wonder if you could be a friend like Aristarchus. And I wonder if you can model after a man like this. Not that he's a perfect kind of guy, but that he's a faithful kind of guy who anything that comes for the sake of Christ, he's willing to endure it. Even if it means being a fellow prisoner, to another believer. He chose to be that. He chose to be in prison with Paul, to undergo those same hardships and to endure those same experiences. Anything that came because of the name and the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, Aristarchus was willing to take that on. And I would ask you, are you of the same mind? Following Jesus, it isn't an easy road. We've discussed that before. The road that leads to life, the road that leads to eternity, the road that leads to union with God forever. It's a narrow path. And it's a difficult path. And there's few that find it, and there's fewer that stay on it. So many jump ship when the times get hard and when people come after Christians and when Christianity is under assault. But there's men like Aristarchus who say, I'll be here with you to the end. I wonder if you will be that kind of Christian for one another. The times will only get harder. The culture will only get that much more antagonistic against the church. The world will continue and and try to bring down God's people and make God to be nothing. And I wonder if you will stand the test of time. Aristarchus did. He understood that it was much better to carry his cross and to follow Christ and to be found weak and wanting, and one day see the judgment of God on his life. It is better to endure the trials of life that come now than endure the wrath that comes later. So Aristarchus, he's a fellow slave. He's a friend who's by your side when you need him. Not just when you want him, but in the moment of your darkest hour, he's there. And he's there because he loves the Lord Jesus. Fourthly, we see another man. His name is Mark. And Mark is the failed success. Mark is the failed success. And if you're thinking those two don't make any sense, that's typically how God's people work. We find Mark in Acts 13, and he's a companion to the Apostle Paul and also um, to one of the great disciples whose name is Barnabas. And he joins them on a missionary journey, but very quickly 
Paul doesn't like this guy because as they're doing ministry and as things get hard, uh, Mark is kind of the very opposite of Aristarchus. He, he doesn't stand tall. He doesn't get stronger. He doesn't endure. He thinks, this is too hard. I'm out. The moment things got difficult, Mark fell back. When things got tough, Mark proved to be soft. He wasn't ready for the heat that came with ministry. He wasn't ready for the hardships that came from bearing the name of Jesus. He's so different from the men that we've already seen here. And because of it, Paul and Barnabas, they get into this argument over Mark. Barnabas is saying, well, let's just give him another shot. We should take him in and we should take him with us. He's useful. He's going to be all right. And Paul says, not a chance. I don't want that guy. He's lame. He's unfaithful. He's too worried all the time. He only cares about himself. And so Paul gives up on this guy. Isn't that interesting? But something happens to him that changes everything. And we can't put it all together exactly what it is, but there's some details in Scripture that help us. One would be in 1 Peter 5.13. Peter, in writing his letter, he makes reference to his, this man, and he calls him my son, which in, in spiritual terms, so to speak, it's a spiritual son, obviously not literally my son, and not like when you go to your friend and you go, what up, son? Like, that's not, or maybe that was just in my day. Maybe you don't do that anymore. I'm really old. This is my son, Mark, and this is a man who he invested in, it seems. It seems like it's a man who he poured his life into and really tried to build up. And I'll tell you what, if there's any kind of guy that really could have helped Mark, it would have been Peter. Peter understood exactly what it was like to fail. Peter understood exactly what it was like to fall so short of God's grace. He understood exactly what it was like to betray the mission. When Jesus was being flogged and beaten and bruised and preparing for a cross, Peter was cowering and saying he never knew him. And so you're going to bring me a man like Mark who's a little scared of gospel ministry? I'll take him in. I can help that kind of guy. It seems like Peter had such an influence on the life of Mark that he really made him useful for gospel ministry. He helped turn his life trajectory around. Peter, one acquainted with failure, he'd take him in and he would build this seeming failure up to be a great prize and joy for the church. In fact, you would later read one of his Gospels in your Bible. The Gospel of Mark, it's likely penned by this guy. And it's likely penned by him and given to us by Peter himself. It's likely he wrote that account of the Gospel on behalf of Peter. You can't get much more useful than being able to write Scripture. Mark, what a turnaround. What a comeback story. He's the failed success once wanting nothing to do with what comes from the gospel, and later giving his entire life to the gospel no matter the cost. And Paul recognizes the reputation that he has. In fact, maybe even because Paul had this seeming thought of, of Mark in his mind. And so as Mark is being introduced here, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he says of him, concerning him, you've received instructions, and if he comes to you, welcome him. It's a little bit like he's, he's made a reputation in the town and Paul saying, I, I know you might not think he's useful, but trust me, he's different. He's the failed success. 
And that's the story of so many in the church. That's the story of so many of you in this room. Where living for Christ used to be a burden, now you can see nothing better to do with your life but to give it all to Him. Mark, the failed success, is a faithful friend to Paul. Sure, he learned it the hard way, but he learned it. And some of you have probably a very similar story to him. Following Christ, it seems like it's difficult. It seems like no one else is doing it. It seems like it isn't worth it. And you've gone down a path where you think, this is a lot easier, I'll stick over here. This is a lot less challenging. This is a lot less distressful. This is a lot less discouraging. I'll do this. Christ can take a person like that and turn him around and make him useful for ministry. If it could happen for Mark, it could happen for you. Quickly here, we have a few others to get through. Mark, the failed success. Fifthly, we have Jesus or justice, and I've titled him the forgotten sidekick. I know that's kind of funny, but it's exactly what he is. Jesus was called justice. Jesus is just a Greek name for the Hebrew word or the Hebrew name itself, which would have been Joshua, which means salvation. And it looks like they understood how important it was to call someone Jesus, so they called him justice. And there's nothing to say about him, except that I hit this. There's nothing to say about him. He's just a a faithful man, and if there's anything to say about him at all, it's this. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been of comfort to me. He's the forgotten sidekick, but he's willing to stand with Paul, and he's a comfort to Paul. And Paul recognizes that, and Paul appreciates that, and it doesn't seem like he needs much accolade or much affirmation in that. And that's a good thing to have. This guy, he isn't mentioned in any other scriptures. He isn't brought up in any other text. And some of us in ministry, we need to be okay with that. In ministry, it's not the kind of name that you make for yourself. In the church, it's not the kind of success or appreciation or even how well-known you are to other people. Some of the most faithful people, they never get recognized like they think they should. But a guy like this, justice, faithful, not because it gains him recognition, but because it brings comfort to Paul and because it honors the Lord Jesus. Can you be that kind of person, that kind of faithful friend in ministry who serves not because it gains anything for you, but because it's the right thing to do before the Lord? This very, very much so resembles what it's like to be on a team, doesn't it? On a team, there's different kinds of players, but everyone has to play their part. You think about a football game like it's going to happen later today. It's really easy in football to name all the quarterbacks in the league. Tell me about offensive linemen. You don't know them. They just stand up there and block. And they don't care. One, because they get paid. But two, because they know their job. Because they know their job. And it's the same across sports teams. There's, also, there's always certain figures that seem to rise to the top. But I'll tell you what, if everyone else isn't doing their part, the whole team collapses. Justice is the kind of role player who doesn't care who's getting the credit in ministry. 
because he recognizes, most importantly, his faithfulness to Christ. He's happy to be a forgotten sidekick if it means that Jesus is being known and the ministry is thriving. Is that who you are in this church? Is that who you can strive to be amongst other Christians? Someone who wants to be known might not know just how worthy Jesus is. It's more important to know Christ and to make him known than to be known. Justice, the forgotten sidekick. Number six, we come to a man who is actually very well known. His name is Epaphras, and he's a fruitful shepherd. He's the fruitful shepherd. He's here in verse 12 for us. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. For the sake of time, I'll just I'll fill in the blanks here. Epaphras is a man beloved to this church in Colossae. He has a deep-rooted care for these people. In fact, it's, it's believed that he may even be their pastor. And he went off to be an encouragement to Paul in prison, and now he's on his way back to be a blessing to this church. And you see very keenly his concern for them. He's a servant in Christ Jesus. He greets them, and he's always struggling. And I know we, we give that word such a bad connotation, but it doesn't need it. To, to struggle with something, it, it just means that there's an intense care about what you're doing. He, he struggles because he cares deeply. It, it's the word that really, the Greek word is the one that brings us the word agony. It, it brings him distress, but it's not a painful or bad distress. It, it's an agony in which he cares so much. He's so passionate. And so he's always struggling for them in prayer. Listen, if someone cares about you, they pray for you often. Prayer isn't cheap. Prayer is power. And so Epaphras struggles mightily for this church church in prayer. And what is his prayers for this church? Well, he says that, that they may stand mature and be fully assured in all the will of God. And that's a good note for us as well. The best thing that someone can be praying for you. It's not simply that grandma would get better. It's not simply that you would feel better. It's not simply that you would do better on your test. It's not simply that one day you'd get the dream job and the dream girl and whatever dream you have. The best prayer for you is that you would know God in full. The best prayer for you is that you would stand tall and mature in Christ. That your life would look more like his and less like yourself that you would be assured in the will of God by knowledge of Him. It's Paul's desire and prayer for this church himself. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. He he wants them to be filled, verse 9, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's Epaphras' prayer for this church too. People who care about you, they care most of all that you would know God and that you would walk in Him. Someone who cares deeply for you, their most, their greatest concern for your life is that you would grow in knowing and loving Jesus and that you would demonstrate that by living a life for Him. 
Paul bears witness to just how much he loves this church. Paul Epaphras has such a deep concern for this church that his concern has spread around to the neighboring regions. He's a pastor in Colossae, but he's also a shepherd and a faithful and fruitful shepherd to some of the areas nearby, Laodicea and Heropolis. And so this man, he's been entrusted with a lot. And a man like him can be because he has the right kind of focus. His goal isn't to be known and it isn't to be liked. It's for people to know and to love Christ. It's the kind of people you need by your side. Someone who's going to invest in you, pray for you, and desire that more than anything in your life, you would know and love Christ. Seventh, we turn to a man named Luke. He's noted here in verse 14 as the beloved physician. And he just sends greetings. Well, Luke is a faithful friend to Paul, and I like him a lot because he's very different to the rest of these. In fact, Luke is a doctor. So he's kind of a doctor turned missionary. And he's been by Paul's side, helping him along the way, especially when things get difficult, as he helps him get just a little bit better. You know Luke because he wrote a gospel as well, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And so Luke, evidently, he has this particular career path, but it doesn't stop him from serving his people, and serving God's people, and from serving Christ. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us in this room. Listen, I don't expect for all of you, especially you dudes, right? You're not all going to become pastors. In fact, if that's the only desire in this room, that would be kind of strange. Many of you are going to go on to do very different things. And I pray that none of those career choices, none of those paths that you take are a hindrance or a roadblock to serving God and his people. Luke was a doctor who made himself a doctor for Jesus. He made that something that he could use to serve Christ and his people. I hope you think of your career, the job that you take on one day in the same way. How can I make it something that's useful and profitable, not just to me, but most importantly, to the kingdom of God? And so Luke didn't give you the title. He's the friendly specialist. He's the friendly specialist. He has a very particular gifting, and he uses it to make Christ known. He uses it to serve God's people. He uses it to be a faithful friend to the Apostle Paul. He uses it to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord. Number eight, and finally here, Demas. And Demas is a bit of a sad case because Demas, we can call him the fallen servant. He's the fallen servant, as does Demas. He doesn't get much attention here, and there's nothing wrong with him at the time. Demas seemed to be a faithful friend, but only for a while. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, We come to find out that Demas, by the end of Paul's life, it seems like he's taken a a wrong turn. And in 2 Timothy 4.9, Paul says that having loved this present world, he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, which might have been his home, so he's gone back home. Demas is the kind of friend that you might have in your corner who's serving with you, seems to love God, seems to know God, But very quickly, as the world presses in, he falls out. And can I tell you something? That's okay. That happens in ministry. That happens in life. That happens in the church. 
It happened to Paul, but you all know this. This also happened to Jesus. Jesus walked with 12 guys for the most of his ministry, three years. One of them betrayed him. There's people in your corner and you need to be watchful and you need to be aware of it that seem to love Jesus a lot. But when it costs them something, they'll fall away. It isn't your job to fix it. It's your job to be aware of it. And be mindful that because of that, in your friend group, in your church, there's never too much Jesus. Because you never know who needs him. We all do. And many of us need more of him, but some of you need him for the first time. Some of you do not understand what it is to love him in truth. And you're kidding yourself because you do so much and you're willing to serve and you want to do all these things, but you do not have a first and primary love of who Christ is and what he's done for you. Demas, he fell in love with the world and he gave up on his people. I think the joys of ministry made him feel like he was okay, even though he didn't have a true love and passion for Christ. One Proverb kind of puts it this way. Prosperity begets friends and adversity proves them. I think Demas is a picture of that. When things were going really well in ministry and in life, he was there. But when things got hard, he fell away. I think all of us need to be reminded through the portrait of Demas that we need Christ. Now you shouldn't kid yourself that just because you go to church and you have Christian friends, you don't need to make much of him. Don't trust that because you're Christian circle and your Christian friends all say they love Jesus, that you don't need to talk about him, that you don't need to pray to him, that you don't need to read about him, that you don't need to meditate on him, that you don't need to talk to him, that you don't need to commune with him. In fact, anyone who knows Christ wants more of him. These are the eight friends that Paul highlights in this letter, and we're out of time, but I'm going to end with this. In these final verses, Paul sends a greeting to this church in particular to a a lady by the name of Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Uh, When this letter's been read to them, he desires too that this final character, Archippus, receives this word, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. And I think he'll understand how to do that by having seen all these faithful men already described before him. But truly the highlight of this final greeting is in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Paul, as he culminates this letter and ties it all together, he demonstrates what life in Christ looks like through the means of not just himself, but all these faithful men of God. And this final refrain, this final pastoral touch, it points them back to the truth he's been aiming at this entire time. Grace be with you. Four words that seem otherwise very cliche and very normal and very like, wow, great, now we can be done with this. But grace be with you has been the point of the entire letter. The point of the entire letter is that if you want to be like Paul, if you want to be like any of these other men who have been faithful in the church, And if you want to give your life to God in a way that would please him and honor him, you won't be able to do that for yourself. You need God's grace. When you understand Jesus rightly, you refuse the world's opinions of Christ and you take Christ at his word, then and only then can you receive his grace and can you follow him. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for your truth.
pray that you would help us even as we go from this place to honor you in the way that we live, in the way that we serve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.